0: Welcome to Unreconstructed, brought to you by Confederateshop.com. Here's your host, Matt Miller. Welcome to the third episode of the Unreconstructed podcast, and I am glad that you tuned in. Episode three, I'm going to do something slightly different. I'm going to give a book review for one of my most favorite and most recommended books. Um, It's entitled Defend Dixie. This little uh, booklet is really only 39 pages, and it's written by a good friend of ours named John Vincent. John is also the author of the book Southerner Take Your Stand, which is another fantastic book you can purchase on our website, confederateshop.com. But just to focus on Defend Dixie, the reason why I recommend this book is how vital it is for our side to have sound arguments. In the very beginning of this little booklet, John outlines what the other side's narrative is. It goes along something like this. Uh, Slavery was the cause of the Civil War. The North, in its goodness, could no longer tolerate the brutal slave system of the South. Southerners reacted by unlawfully pulling out of the glorious Union to defend human bondage. The North responded by invading the South, that being the only way to end slavery. Now, in a nutshell, what I just read and what John Vinson said in his book is the said narrative that most professional historians assert or kind of allude to. They may not say those exact words, but, you know... Well, the North was, were the good guys, and the South were the bad guys, and the South was defending slavery, and slavery was what the war was all about, and that's why those men charged the hills at Gettysburg and uh, you know, died these horrible deaths, because they were defending someone else's slaves. I mean, that's kind of what they allude to in their narrative. But our side usually refutes these um, claims with very long-winded answers a lot of times that many people can't follow or many people don't understand. So what Defend Dixie was designed to do was give our side the ammunition we need to defend our position properly. We need a better narrative. We need the quick answers that our side frequently gives. Well, slavery. They, they always bring up the word slavery, and then we find ourselves trying to make a giant case on how slavery was really a Northern institution, right? I mean, you had all the slave ships in the North that were supporting the slave trade for years since the founding of America. And we say how uh, Northern states that were still in the union had slavery. And we go into a very long drawn out process instead of giving really brief answers like, why did the South fight? Because they were invaded. It was because um, of self-determination to determine their own destiny as far as how they were going to govern themselves. Now, whether slavery had a part to do with that or not is beside the point. Their point was a state had a right to do what it wanted and what the will of the people was within its own borders, as outlined within the Declaration of Independence. But anyway, our tactics for defending our history and heritage are often ineffective. So I believe that this book is essentially what we need and it's effective in exposing the Yankee malice, aggression, and unlawful invasion. Now, I say all that. I really want to read a part of it. At the very end of the book, he does something kind of special that I think is brilliant, and that is address some of the most heard claims. Confederate symbols are divisive. He addresses the secession documents, Alexander Stevens' Cornerstone speech, treason of Lee and all the other Confederates, slavery issue. There are a certain number of things that the opposing side, well, our enemies and the anti-Confederate crowd bring up frequently that we need to have answers to. And just one of them is uh, Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens called slavery and white supremacy the keystone of the Confederacy. Over the past 10 years, I've heard this claim more and more, and it, it really does need to be addressed. There's a lot of details that people don't understand. They read the speech, they read Alexander Stevens' speech, And they take it out of context, or they're reading an article from a journalist company, or they're reading what a professor says in a book, and they're not reading the entire speech. They're not putting everything into context. And so they interpret this and define the Confederacy by the words of Alexander Stevens. And in Defend Dixie, he states how we should refute this. I'm just going to read it. This statement is one anti-Southerners commonly cite to prove that the cause of the South was slavery. For the record, Stevens maintained that the reporter quoting the Keystone comment misstated his meaning. What he intended to convey was that the Confederate Constitution followed the example of the U.S. Constitution in recognizing slavery as a Keystone principle. He maintained that changing conditions could have led to the demise of slavery. In one respect, the Confederate Constitution was less pro-slavery than the U.S. Constitution at its inception the Confederate document outlawed the slave trade with Africa, a strange provision to say the least for a country, quote, fighting for slavery. Stephen's view, in any case, was less significant than that of Confederate Jefferson Davis. On the eve of the war, Davis wrote a letter to his wife stating that he doubted that slavery would survive the conflict, regardless of the outcome. Toward the end of the war, He dispatched Duncan Keener, a prominent slave owner from Louisiana, on a mission to France and Britain to ask if those countries would recognize the Confederacy, if the South moved to abolish slavery. France said it would follow Britain's decision. The British declined. Definitely, Davis' cause was not slavery, rather it was precisely what he said it was, self-determination for the South. So that's just one example. Some of the other claims that we often hear, Confederate symbols are divisive right? Uh, Confederate symbols are offensive, so therefore we shouldn't fly them. Your heritage is hate. How many times do you hear people say, you know, it's heritage, not hate? Well, their comeback is always, your heritage is hate. How would we address that? I'm just going to read it. Our heritage is our history, the good and the bad. It is our roots, our memory, and the expression of our culture and all its aspects, cuisine, literature, art, folklore, politics, religion. It is who we are, With respect to the war for Southern independence, it is the memory of heroic resistance to tyranny. As all humans, we Southerners have a capacity for good and evil. It is our duty to stress the good. To say our heritage is hate is to say that there is nothing good about us at all. That in itself is an expression of the most profound hatred and malice. So I really like like this book. And when I run into a young person in my shop, Sometimes I even give a copy of this to them because I think it's so essential and I think it's so important. So if you would ask me what the best little booklet, the best defense was in defending our heritage that's going to boil down all the essential points that we need to know that's backed up with cited materials, it would be Defend Dixie. You need to have this book on your shelf and you need to get a copy for all the young people you know that are curious about our perspective. This is what we need. We need this. I could address a lot of different things when it comes to that book, but one of the main points that this book helped me to really understand, and I'm going to go in deeper in my next episode, probably episode four, is the Southern Secession documents. You can't have any kind of online discussion with the opposing team without them saying, well, you know, South Carolina's uh, ordinances of secession or the declaration of secession or why they seceded, they wrote it down and they said slavery. Let me just say this out of the 13 southern states, only four of those states mentioned slavery in their documentation for seceding. Only four. Some might even say three. So it's a very misunderstood subject and there's a good reason why. And I'm just going to give a brief reason. What the South was expressing in those documents was outraged reaction against the abolitionist movement that literally wanted them dead. In all the examples that they gave in all their radical abolitionist newspapers and works such as Hinton Helper, John Brown, Nat Turner, their idea of ending Southern slavery, their idea was the most brutal and inhumane way possible, through murder and through race war. And what they were doing was polluting the minds of both Southerners and Northerners with propaganda of hostility towards the South in the most evil way possible. Southerners were outraged at the lies that were coming from up north. They were outraged from the abolitionist movement trying to incite violence within their society. So, of course, they're going to use the issue of slavery to ignite the Southern hearts. But I think it's a really important point, and I may have mentioned this before. If the South truly wanted to preserve slavery indefinitely within their nation, within the United States, within the Union itself, the only thing they had to do, the few states that had seceded, they had to rejoin the Union. If they would have rejoined the Union, they could have preserved slavery indefinitely. Now, how is this? It's called the Corwin Amendment. It's the first proposed 13th Amendment. And it was passed by the House, it was passed by the Senate, it was approved by Lincoln, it was approved by all those northern politicians, and many northern states had already signed it, right? It it just needed two thirds of the state approval to become part of the US Constitution, and slavery would have been preserved indefinitely. And this was the offer handed to the South to the seceded states. Hey guys, come back into the Union and we'll make sure slavery is preserved indefinitely. So if that's why the South was contending for their independence, if that's the only reason why, why didn't they rejoin? It's an interesting fact, but you can do your own research, you can look it up. There are many other plights that the South was dealing with when it came to Northern aggression. So in the next episode I probably will discuss those things a little bit more. But anyway, Defend Dixie also addresses that, and it gives a clear-cut reason for why they said what they said. So get yourself a copy of Defend Dixie. Now this next part is a story that is really a tragedy, and it comes from the Shenandoah Herald uh, here in Shenandoah County, which is one county over from where we're located in Rocknam County. And it was originally published not only in the Shenandoah Herald, but also in the Richmond Dispatch. And John Graybill was the owner of the Shenandoah Herald at the time. Just to give you some background information. So John Graybill was the editor and and owner of the Shenandoah Herald at the time. And I've had folks question this story. Um, But if you look at Mr. Graybill, who's a pretty reliable source, most people back then knew everyone in their town. The names in this story, the places in this story, the locations in this story all check out. I can assure you that, that as far as I can tell, there's no evidence to say that this story did not happen. The article differs in some of the details from the present account, which I have secured from persons who were present and are still living in Woodstock, Virginia. The writer personally knew the small family, consisting of Andrew Getz, Elizabeth, his wife, and their simple minded son, Davy. Davy was about thirty years of age. The family lived in a small house close to the Methodist church, and for the rent of the humble home, they served as sexton of the church. Davy was mentally deficient, and no duty of a civil or military character was required of him. He was simple and harmless. The boys loved to tease him, and many a Confederate soldier told Davy that he would come from the army to take him back with him. He was a very timid child. He had no ambition to be a soldier, but was always frightened when the suggestion was made that he should go into the army. David had, in some way, become possessed of an old musket, and with it amused himself hunting ground squirrels and small birds. In the summer of 1864, he was engaged in his usual sport in the pines near his home when a squad of federal soldiers suddenly came upon him. To their question, are you a bushwhacker? he replied, why yes. He had no comprehension of the term bushwhacker. He was at once seized by a number of federal soldiers, dragged to the pike, I'm just going to say, which is U.S. Route 11, and then tied to a wagon. The poor fellow was almost frightened to death, and his heart rending screams aroused the entire town. There was a wail that can hardly be imagined. Accustomed as the people were to the brutality of the Federals who prowled through the valley, nothing aroused their sympathy and horror, not even the burning of their homes and churches by the fire fiends of the brutal Sheridan, as did this inhumane outrage. Tied behind a wagon and dragged through the streets, his plaintive cries and shrieks brought to their doors the ladies from both sides of the street. Helpless, they stood and wept for the poor Unfortunate. Close behind him walked his mother and father, clasping each other's hands. They continued to follow their screaming child until they were driven back by the bayonets of the federal soldiers. Custer's camp was about one mile south of Woodstock. Here, he was waited upon by Miss J.L. Campbell, Miss Murphy, and other ladies in the town, who gave him a truthful statement of the character of the man and besought Custer to look at him, as one glance would convince him of the truth of their statements. He roughly repulsed them. He was afterwards visited by Moses Walton, a distinguished lawyer of Woodstock, Dr. J.S. Irwin, a union man of the town, and Mr. Adolf Heller, a prominent merchant and a strong union man, at whose house both Custer and Torbett had occasionally made their headquarters. While Mr. Heller was at heart a union man, he was always ready to protect the innocent, so far as was within his power. He earnestly besought General Custer to release the poor idiot, when Custer said that he had proposed to have him shot. Mr. Heller boldly replied, General Custer, you will sleep in a bloody grave for this. Surely a just God will not permit such a crime to go unavenged. These gentlemen left his headquarters, saddened by the exhibition of brutality upon the part of Custer. The words of Mr. Heller proved to be prophetic. Poor Davy Goetz was again tied behind a wagon, compelled to walk to Bridgewater, Virginia, a distance of 45 miles, there forced to dig his own grave, and was then murdered like a dog. The father, several years later, committed suicide. The mother was taken to the home of her son, Mr. Levi Getz of Rockingham County, where she died some years ago. So if you want to track this source down, um, it's it's been published in so many different papers throughout the United States, uh, but one source is Confederate Veteran Magazine, Volume Fifteen, Number Three from March nineteen o seven, pages one hundred twenty to one hundred twenty one. You can also find it in Richmond Dispatch. You can also find it in the Shenandoah Herald. Um, but anyway, I did some extensive research on this, and all the names mentioned: uh, Levi Getz, Davy's father the town people, the pro-union people, Dr. J.S. Irwin, the church in Woodstock. Um, these things check out. These places actually exist. And I had, I had someone really get on me uh, about this story because, because I, I can't produce the kind of evidence they think is sufficient enough. But let me just say this. John Grable was a well-known man in Shenandoah County. He owned the newspaper. He owned a publishing company. Do you suppose that if he was telling lies that included the majority of the town, some large lies, don't you think someone would have spoken up and said something? Don't you think his career would have been damaged if he was saying such profound lies that were reaching the entirety of the country? I don't think so, especially when all of this checks out. So this story is real. I, I think it's pretty safe to say that it's um, it's it happened. So... Take it for what you will. It's a sad, sad story. And the thing about these tales, these stories, is the only justice that will ever come from these stories is telling the stories. That's the only justice that poor Davy is ever going to have. Now, at the end of the article, it does say the reverend's words were pretty prophetic. That's because Custer was, he did sleep in a bloody grave when the Native Americans got him out west so you kind of say it's retribution from the lord because well you know the story so we just want to we just want to honor these kind of stories and give them the notoriety that they deserve so i hope you enjoyed that so that's going to wrap up episode 3 of the unreconstructed podcast i hope you enjoyed this historical story I really hope that you go get yourself a copy of Defend Dixie. We've already sold a few hundred copies of this within the past couple years. You might already have a copy and that's okay. Maybe get yourself another copy to give to someone. Like I said, I give this thing out myself because it's such an essential piece of material. And if you already have a copy, get one for your friend or for a young person that you know. Give it to them and it'll be useful. It's such a valuable and useful piece of material. At some point, I'm going to have John on the podcast to talk about all the books that he's written, especially Defend Dixie. He's a very well-spoken man. He's very well-educated. I enjoy our conversations, and I think you'd enjoy listening to our conversations. So stay tuned for that. It's probably going to be in the near future. Thank you all for listening to this third episode of the Unreconstructed Podcast. I hope you all have a great day. Bye-bye.